The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, January 29th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And this weekend, this Sunday, it's the Super Bowl. I do so love the Super Bowl. I consider it to be almost, I don't know, the World Series of football. You know what I mean? The Grand Prix of the Gridiron. No, we know what it is. It's the GD Super Bowl. I think that's Roman numerals. Anyway, there's one place where it's not the Super Bowl, or a lot of places, anywhere on TV that they advertise that's not an approved vendor for said Super Bowl. So, bit of a confession. Mm -hmm. I'm hosting the big game this year, and I told everyone I have the world's most amazing 4K TV. The big game. Might they mean by the big game, tonight's contest between Eastern Michigan and Central Michigan on the hardwood? I know the Eagles possess a 9-11 record, whereas Central Michigan comes in at 14-6. and six. But when the Eagles face the Chippewas, you could throw the records out the window. Oh, that's not the big game you had in mind? Perhaps the big game to which you refer is Thursday's tilt between the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Winnipeg Jets. That's right, it is a big game to residents of Manitoba's dominant metropolis. What's the second largest city in Manitoba, you ask? Brandon. Brandon, Manitoba, who is also, I think, a backup defensive back for the L.A. Rams who are playing in the Super Bowl. It is the Super Bowl. Hey, NFL, it's not bad for the brand. It's good for the brand if you allow broadcasters, bars, and Best Buy to just say Super Bowl. Now, this idea that the Super Bowl is some kind of secular holiday? Well, it's not. If I can't say Super Bowl, you don't see that restriction on any of the actual holidays. Eid, Feast of the Ascension, Sukkot, you can say them all. I don't go into my home and gardening store during Sukkot and say, hey, do you have a lean-to for God's campout? No! I say, I need a sukkah for Sukkot, sucker. Big game. The Super Bowl's like Christmas? No way! The way Christmas got to be Christmas was by calling it Christmas. Celebrate Christmas. Tell people you want to put the Christ back in Christmas. Mention a theory about there being a war on Christmas. It's all fine because in each case, you're allowed to say Christmas. Oh, you doing anything for the big mass on the 25th there, Reverend? It is the height of hypocrisy, the World Cup of obfuscation, the Super Bowl of insanity, not just to allow whoever wants to say Super Bowl to say Super Bowl. And next year, I hope the New York Jets are in the Super Bowl and that they play Washington's team, which Slate does not allow me to name. On the show today, I spiel about Chris Christie's new book, but first, Zelizer and Cruz, names that connote scholarship, analysis, and perhaps the craziest buddy cop film ever. No, they're Princeton historians, Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz. They're out with a recent history of America that explains all this crazy tension you're feeling. No, not the, not the crazy tension of the Super Bowl versus the big game stuff. That's, just, that's on me. We're talking about their new book, Fault Lines, and we're talking about it up next. Mm-hmm. 
So you don't go to Princeton, or maybe you do. You didn't go to Princeton, maybe because you couldn't afford it or couldn't get in, or like me and Daniel went to a better school, Emory. But if you did go to Princeton, you might have the opportunity to uh, not only soak in the words of a great professor, but two great professors who would have teamed up and said, hey, I I like uh, your peanut butter and my chocolate. And this is what the professors Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer have done over the last few semesters. Let us teach history, but acknowledge the part that's usually the coda in the history book. And then the last 40 years. Let's look at the last 40 years. Let's start with right after Watergate and let's use that period to tell us what going on. They have a new book, so you can go to Princeton right now in this interview. It's called Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Professors Cruz and Zelizer are here with me. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Was 74 the logical start point because it was post-Watergate or was something fundamental uh, occurring at the same time? Well, the event that matters that year uh, that captures where the country was was the resignation of of President Nixon, which is a traumatic and dramatic event uh, that that is shocking, that begins an era of distrust in, in government. Part of what happens is by the early 70s, a lot of the institutions that have been really important in this country, uh, the, the value of the federal government, the union-based manufacturing economy, even certain ideas of the family, are we, we argue they're in a state of crisis. Many people don't believe in that anymore. And so new forces start to take hold and, and start by the early 80s to turn the idea of religion and politics into the idea of conservative religion and politics, whereas earlier, I think it had been much more diverse. You know, religious leaders on the left were very important to the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. But by the end of the 70s, this religious right, they are the dominant force in the public square in terms of bringing these two parts of American life together. Do fault lines, I want to ask all about the implication of this. So when we say fault lines, when you think about the analogy, it's it's tectonic plate theory and an earthquake can happen and it seems like something bad. But on the other hand, you know, I studied political science. There are always disagreement or cleavages uh, in public opinion. And not only are they inevitable, uh, that's why politics exists to address different peoples with different opinion. Is the problem that there are fault lines? Is the problem that the fault lines are bigger and more um, insurmountable? You know, what is the inherent problem with fault lines? Well, yes, you're, there, there are always fault lines, right? There are always these lines of division in American society. And, but what's different about this period is that, you know, before, to use your metaphor, tectonic plates, the plates had shifted and they came together. And you always had kind of a, you had a big land mass in one place or another. Just the, the lines divided it. There yes. are probably geologists out there rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> but we have a huge geologist huge audience. Fan. My apologies yeah. to the geologists. Yes, yes. But, but, but if you think about it, you know, there was always some sort of sense of, of how are the lines shifted? They were going to come together at some point. There's going to be some landmass right in there. Mm-hmm. And what we see in this period is that the fracturing that takes place um, really doesn't lead to a set of healing. But what happens, as we saw over the 70s and 80s, is a new um, – it's not a, a kind of an integrated society. It's really a society that celebrates diversity. Mm-hmm. It celebrates cultural nationalism. It really celebrates going back to your roots. And this is across all sides. And so people kind of fragment. The same thing happens in the media. We talk about the the rise of, of cable TV and what that does, where you get away from this old world in which you had this common uh, public square of the th- big three networks where everyone kind of was talking and what the mainstream media said, a couple big newspapers. And it said you've got this incredibly fragmented landscape, a landscape that really uh, slices and dices the uh, uh, the audience out there. And people are suddenly speaking only to people who agree with them, right? And so what happens is it's not that there are 
just a new set of fault lines, but there are there's incredible fragmenting, and there's no sense that they need to go back to a common ground. Everyone's yeah. kind of happy in their own little isolated worlds. There is a theory that when we say things like we're at each other's throats, we're at this era of intense partisanship and people are more upset and anxious than they've been, there is a theory that that only happens because we're confronting necessary evils. And in the era of Pax Americana, there was slavery going on, mm-hmm. you know? And I guess people, some white people maybe, uh, are nostalgic for the pre-civil rights era, but that was only because a huge part of the society was being oppressed. So this theory says, you know, to some extent, you can't get the progress without the tumult. We see that is an important argument, and, and we actually try to capture that. So one of the chapters we have on the Reagan era, it deals with the AIDS crisis, yeah. and we deal with the formation of ACT UP and the gay rights movement and people like Larry Kramer who said this administration is going the wrong way. It's ignoring a true crisis that's taking place, and that's an example where that it's very divisive and the rhetoric is extreme. But that was a good thing because by the 90s, we show how it actually uh, leads to a change in policy. Toward the end of the book, we have on Black Lives Matters. And you can argue with the conservative movement. They, too, raised a series of questions that a large part of the country believed were being unaddressed. So so those are good things. And, and they could lead to progress. I mean, one of the other parts of this, though, is the way our institutions have worked in many areas. Take politics, for example. Regardless of of what people are arguing about or regardless of what problems we have, they foster a divisive kind of politics. The way our primaries work, the way campaign finance works after the 1980s, the way the parties work on Capitol Hill. Even if there's areas of consensus like gun control, Mm -hmm. there's going to be little space to get those voices heard in the political system. And that's an important part of what we were looking at. So is the is the key to addressing divisiveness, does it lie within the character of the actors or is it structural? Well, the classic historian's answer is yes, both of those. Uh, so so I think <laughs> you, a lot of it is want structural. tenure, it yeah. is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but it does have to do with the personality. I mean, so if you, if you think about, about some of the key drivers of this, a, a figure who I think is kind of central in the book is Newt Gingrich, sure. uh, who really does uh, come about. And, and this goes back to your early point about the, kind of the Pax Americana, right, kind of kind of tampering down things. The end of the Cold War opens up a lot of room, right? And so someone like Gingrich, who had already been really moving uh, his party to the right during the 80s and the 90s, he's got free room to do this. And he, and he really does. And, and he really leans in with, a, with kind of a hard edge, uh, take no prisoners approach to to, to politics, which at the time alarms a lot of people, but it gets results. So a lot of people copy him. But to go back to my question, is it the person, is it the personal or the structural? You know, you can argue, and I've had this discussion with Steve Kornacki, that if it wasn't Gingrich seeing the opportunity, it would have been someone. Like it was the person who saw the opportunity to exploit the structure. But I don't know. You get it. Yeah. You get a. You get a question like, if it wasn't Isaac Newton, someone was going to discover uh, gravity. But if it wasn't Hitler, maybe no one would take over Germany and push it in exactly that direction. Yeah, but I mean, so you take something like the history of the news media in the period we're studying, and it is pretty dramatic how the offerings that people have become increasingly and increasingly splintered, fragmented, and openly partisan. We start with cable in 1980 with CNN going on the air. We move to Fox television in 1996 and and many aspects, and the fairness doctrine is gone. And then we move into the kind of wild west of the social media. And, and, And so that's a real 
institutional structure that people face when they want to get the news, when they want to talk to each other, that pushes, you know, if, if we have two sides, if, if there are characters, some who want to push to consensus and, and others who want to be Gingrich-like, it favors the Gingrich-like. Right. Yes, and that's where we are today. And that's an important part of the history for people to understand. It's not whatever people want, they can do. And and so it's either voices of good and unity or voices of bad and divisiveness. We have institutions that favor divisiveness pretty clearly at this point. So I was thinking about the fault lines, political, racial, economic, and gender slash uh, sexual identity. And I have this theory, I don't even know if it's true, or just thinking back to the last couple presidential elections, the candidate who wins is the one who addresses not best, but to the best satisfaction of the people. It's complicated because Trump didn't win the popular vote. But if you look at what Obama did versus everyone, he was the perfect embodiment of racial, uh, of addressing the racial fault line. So much of what he said was about changing the process, the broken political process. I don't know if he delivered or could deliver, but he really talked about that more than anything. He talked about issues of gender, maybe not so much sexuality, but of course, when he ran, that wasn't as prominent. And then the economic message was important. And the more you ignore the fault lines or, you know, emphasize two of them and then just kind of ignore one or two, maybe the less um, compelling you are as a political figure. I don't know. It's an idea. But I mean, so look look back to Obama, though. I mean, I, th- I think this is a great model. We can't let it pass. He came into office promising a post-partisan presidency. Yeah. Right? We're going to enter this era. We're going we're gonna to heal these long divisions. He had that – his coming out speech in 2004 was about, you know, we've got this in the red states. We've got this in the blue states. We're all one United States of America, right? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. Felt good. People voted for it. And then what does he run up against? He runs up against Eric Cantor and Mitch McConnell, who realized that the way to deny a president from claiming any kind of bipartisan success is simply to keep all the Republican votes at home. That's right. And as long as you can hold the line, right? And they're very explicit about this. Yeah. They say this publicly and privately. The Republicans too. have a big say in how bipartisan. That's exactly right. Say, and so, yeah. and so, if you can, you know, if you can deny them that vote, right? Uh, that 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 you know, it's, there's nothing he can do to win, right? Over the past week, some have said <clears throat> it was indelicate of me to suggest that our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. In fact, there are several moments where uh, uh, Republicans say, you know, well, we were told, you know, if the president was for it, we had to be against it, no matter what. It's just kind of, a, it's, it's, it's a reflexive partisanship. And that wins out. You know, you see what happens in, in 2010, the Tea Party comes in in a huge victory. And so Obama's on the ropes. And it's funny. I mean, so I see like Trump is a little different, actually. Uh, I see him as someone who is willing to dive deep uh, into the ugly of American society. And in some ways, he's the most honest president, funny enough, about where we are. And he exploits these divisions and he plays to the divisions. And we wrote this book before it was even conceivable that Donald Trump would be President Trump. And we added the end. Uh, But in some ways, he is a perfect ending to this period. And he's, uh, you know, I think Obama ran against the current of where we were. He tried to. Uh, I, I genuinely think he believed what he said in 2004 when he spoke to the yeah. Democrats. Uh, but I think President Trump is very comfortable in the system, in the culture that we have traced. Uh, and he brings out the ugliness, I would say, uh, rather than pushing against it. All right, here's my last question. Do you find 
this, there's this phenomenon which anything that happened before you were two or three, before you actually got to experience, is in this huge category called history. And it doesn't matter if it was two years before or 200 years before. Maybe if there's film footage of it, you could convince yourself it was more real. I was talking to the guy who wrote First Man about Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. So two years before I was born, maybe three. To me, Neil Armstrong, as an actual figure to think about, is not so much different than Ulysses S. Grant. They're just in this huge glop of a category. And I wonder if, <laughs> like, yeah, if, if you experience this uh, personally, if you experience this through the students. And, you know, why do you think that is mentally? Well, I think, look, I think everything that comes before your real-world memory in some ways, all falls into this big category of, I have no idea, I'm learning in the books. And if you're two years off or 200 years off, I think for a lot of people, uh, it's equally foreign. Um, And I think that's how we work. And when I uh, teach the 9-11 lecture, Kevin remembers this, and we do it in the book too. In the class, I always show when the kids walk in, the students walk in, a five-minute montage of the news that morning. Uh, and it starts early with Al Roker doing the weather and it ends with the second tower uh, coming down. And I do that because they don't, they've heard of 9 11, they've right. seen, they don't remember what it's like. And yeah. that is a vivid way to get it from the bucket of it happened before me to, oh my God, they're always silent after that for a long time. And in the book, um, we have uh, that we start nine eleven. We have what was on the cover of the newspaper that I, morning. It was, it was uh, very heavy backpacks among elementary yeah, right, school kids. Right. Right. It's the same device, and it's this. That's part of what you have to do. So I think it's just you have to move people, and and I think that's a challenge of historians is to try to get you from thinking about that stuff that's not right. your lifetime. Yes, and saying, oh, I can feel it. I have a kind of understanding of who these people were. It's hard to do, um, but it's one big bucket. The one thing I would say about that, that we, that we should do as communicators, but also I'm thinking very much of politicians. It comes up in politics where someone will say something about what Biden's role in the crime bill was or Hillary Clinton talking about super predators. And that person will have a knowledge of it that's expansive and that goes forward and back and into the depth of things. But they're talking to maybe a person who was born in 1999 and didn't really realize how in the grip of concern about murder we were and how we didn't know that crime rates rates were already going down and how the phrase super predators was in the most respected, even liberal publications of the time. And I guess you can't explain it, but it's just an inevitable gap in knowledge and understanding. And maybe it it hurts the olds in trying to communicate with the youngs. It's really important. I mean, my lesson with this was I taught at Albany. It was my first job, SUNY Albany. And I was a young historian. I was all excited. I gave this whole lecture on the cold war and different nuances of it and foreign policy debates, domestic debates. I left the classroom and one student quietly comes up and she says, what was the Cold War? (laughs) And and I realize you really have to start with the basics. And I think we did a lot of... This is hard because we lived through it. We have that memory of it. So we can say MTV or D. Snyder testifying yeah. about uh, – and we know who he was. But yeah. most readers 
won't. And and I think it's really important in broadcasting and history to start with those basics to explain what the Cold War was before you jump into the debates. Yeah. You know. All right. And there they yeah. are with the history since 1974, including uh, the entire oeuvre of Twisted Sister. They <laughs> go way beyond we're not going to take it. Only only three <laughs> chapters of the book are on Twisted Sister. But uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I think it speaks to their, their, whole, their whole body of work. It's just come all ye faithful with one last... <laughs> Note. (laughs) The name of the book is Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, written by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. And now the spiel. Chris Christie has been on tour promoting his new book, Its central idea is the idea of so many books by a now-ousted former insider. That theme being, oh, if they had just listened to me. Here he was on ABC's This Week. That's not the kind of person when we put together the transition that we wanted to surround the president with. And I think that the the core of the book talks about the idea that this president was so ill-served by the decision made by Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner and Rick Dearborn to throw out all the work that was done by the transition. Well, you say very clearly, Jared. The idea is that if Donald Trump had assiduously followed Chris Christie's carefully laid out 100 and then 200 day plan, filled in the administration with the top minds and best talent the world could offer, then his White House would be in fine shape. The only problem with the idea of talented people steering a laser focused Donald Trump in order to achieve effective policy for the mass of the American people is, well, that Trump didn't have any talented people. And he's about as focused as a terrier who sees a chipmunk and he doesn't really care about effective policy. And also, he's certainly not in it to help the mass of the American people. But that's it. A carefully laid out plan for Donald Trump that I think we can consider to be Chris Christie fanfic and a Trump White House staffed with the best and the brightest. That's like casting the fanfic with graduates of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. That is not what I came here to talk about, however. And I also don't want to talk about Bridgegate, and I don't want to talk about that highly memorable beach sojourn where Christie was already the least popular governor in America. No, I want to go back. And I do go back with Christie. I once sat across from him in his office when he was U.S. attorney and he was busting crooked New Jersey politicians, which is to say New Jersey politicians. And I have paid careful attention to his election and to his reelection and to his assent. And what I want to do is I want to remind everyone what his popularity was based on. It was based to a large degree on sparring or maybe you might consider even bullying teachers public school teachers. He'd do town halls and he'd let teachers have the microphone. I wonder how um, your reforms are going to help the middle class when so many middle class teachers have been laid off this year and so many middle class teachers are spending tons of money out of their pockets to supplement the, the budgets that were cut so that they can buy supplies. And so many... Pe- and then Christy would not usually cut off the question, but a staffer would take away the teacher's mic, and then Christie would be the only one left with an amplified voice, and he would let loose. Well, a few things. First of all, I have not lambasted the public school system in the state of New Jersey. What I have lambasted, well, listen, let's start with this. Now, at this point, we'll pause. I'll tell you what the questioner is doing. She's rolling her eyes somewhat. Here's what Christie says. 
I sat here, stood here, and very respectfully listened to you. If what you want to do is put on a show and giggle every time I talk, well, then I have no interest in answering your question. So if you'd like to... So if you'd, like to, if you'd like to conduct a respectful conversation, I'm happy to do it. If you don't, please go and sit down and I'll answer the next question. What's your choice? Voters loved this shtick. Viewers loved it. Christie put all these interactions online and they got a lot of coverage and earned him a lot of praise. Here's another town hall type event. I never expected or wanted to be rich. It, that doesn't mean anything to me. I make a difference every day in the kids' lives. I won Teacher of the Year five years ago and I think I'm good. That being said, Governor, I have worked, and I started at $12,000, then it went up to $18,500. Counting on those benefits, the pension, when I retired. And I really feel that you are favoring the affluent. Really? Yes, I do. How so? I do. How so? I feel with the, the corporate tax benefits that you're giving to corporations, the Exxon, I'd like you to please address that, sure. that Exxon deal. Yeah. Um, I, you you did know a lot your, about that? I, don't, I know that you could have gotten more money on the dollar. Do I mean, you? Do, do I know? You, do I, you I know would that, like, really? Do you know that? Governor? I, I mean, am, do you know that? I want to know how you know that. Now, what Christie is pushing back on, what she's talking about, the Exxon deal, New Jersey settled with Exxon for $225 million. They were suing for $8.9 billion meaning the Christie administration settled for three cents on the dollar. You might also want to consider the fact that Christie had just announced he was running for the Republican nomination at the time. They like Exxon. And also, when he was head of the Republican Governors Association, ExxonMobil contributed $500,000 to that organization. Environmental groups, good government groups, even corporate groups were shocked by the paucity of the settlement. Christie got defensive with that teacher who asked him about, I don't know, maybe getting more money from Exxon rather than asking public school teachers to take wage freezes. Seemed pretty fair to me, not to Christie. Mm -hmm. Then I'd like to know where you get your information to say to this entire group, I know you could have gotten more money. From my reading. Of what? If I'm wrong. Of what? From whom? Governor, could you please enlighten me? Well, I will, but why don't you finish your question? I'll enlighten you on all of it. The answer was that $225 million was the best the state can do and that a bigger settlement wouldn't solve the pension problem anyway. That's true, wouldn't solve it all, but the tone, the tactic, and the inclination reveals a lot about Christie. I'm not saying Chris Christie is a bully per se. As a man of some heft who is impassioned in Italian, I'm sensitive to throwing around the word bully, but it's clear that Christie could have used language and some form of outreach to attempt to persuade skeptical teachers, and it probably wouldn't work, but... It could have. It could have been better than scorched earth and using them as battering rams. Perhaps Christie could have made efforts to meet teachers part of the way, to marshal facts. He does marshal facts. He knows a lot. He's smart. He had a lot of statistics at his fingertips, and he didn't lie about them. But it was the way he used the opportunity like a prosecutor would use a cross-examination. And he was a prosecutor, and he's used to cross-examinations. But it's clear that Christie whose book title is Let Me Finish, revels in his status as a verbal combatant. He likes it, and the public, at first anyway, liked it too. There was no reason to temper his temper. So when Victor in Atlantic City called up to the Ask the Governor radio show, this is what happened. 
So first you'll hear Victor, and then I'll tell you the visual that goes along with it, because there is a camera on Christie. The uh, station was offering a live stream during the call. Now, I say to you, the most important factor is in education is, your, is the parents and the people behind the children that are in school. A teacher cannot be at home. A teacher cannot reinforce the values of study, the values of education. That is a parent's issue. A teacher can teach in a classroom. They can't teach you once you leave the school. Victor was responding to Christie's constant vilification of teachers, constant degradation of New Jersey schools. At every town hall, a teacher would stand up, a wounded teacher, they'd accuse him, accurately, I think, of denigrating the fine New Jersey public school systems. By the way, U.S. News ranks New Jersey second out of 51 in education. But Christie didn't hear what Victor was saying. He didn't feel the need to engage with Victor. What Christie literally does at the point that I stopped the tape, is he reclines fully in his chair, he throws his hands over his head, and he rolls his eyes back further than that impertinent giggler from the first clip. And he lets Victor have it. Okay, and Victor. I, I Victor? This, Victor? I think you've taken Victor? a really hard... Go ahead. Victor, I, I get your point, okay? So is your point that for the children who don't have involved parents at home, we should just throw them away? This is clearly not Victor's point. But you don't hear from Victor again. Christie goes off, railing against the straw man of those who would ignore any kid without an excellent home life. And yet what I hear all the time from folks like you is it's not the teacher's fault. It's not the educational system's fault. Well, then whose fault is it? It's not about fault. It's about working out the best system you can among all the stakeholders to deliver a quality education. No, sorry. Hold on. Christie's got a full head of steam. And I interrupted him. That we're supposed to give up on these kids because they're parents. It's the teachers' union response every time. It's not our fault. It's the te- it's the parents' fault. Both my parents were in a teachers' union. My dad was an officer of his union. I never heard them say or think anything like this. Christie goes on to praise charter schools and fault unions for wanting more pay if teachers are asked to work a longer year. Christie made his name and soared to heights of popularity bashing teachers, which is to say the blame isn't his alone. Far from it. Much of the public love the vilification, love the easy answers, love the scapegoating, but also blame Christie, who picked these fights intentionally, unfairly, and a bit cruelly. Christie's book actually doesn't seem to have an obvious audience. The MAGA crowd doesn't like how critical he is of Trump. The media wants better answers to questions of complicity or his legal entanglements related to the bridge. But all I'm saying here is that we should not gloss over even the part of Christie's political past that are thought of as his early triumphs. And as for this effort for Christie to literally rewrite his legacy, well, like so many cars stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic at the Fort Lee Toll Plaza... There is little movement on that score. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. We think maybe Chris Christie could have gotten, I don't know, three cents on the dollar. So that'd be an extra hundred million for New Jersey. But how do they know? Who are their sources? Hmm. Gigi Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast. She will not be watching the big game, but will be hunting big game on safari this weekend. And by big game, we mean the rarest of prey, a Best Buy employee who actually comes over to help and knows where things are. The Gist, sponsored by the Sukkah Center. 
1-800-227-SUKA. 8 feet bamboo poles, 37.25. 10 feet bamboo poles, 44.75. A 10 by 12 by 7 canvas sukkah, 8.99. A 10 by 15 by 7 canvas sukkah, 9.99. A canvas flange, $12. If you're not shopping at Sukkah Center, you're my sugar da. Umpere that for a dupere, and thanks for listening.